Welcome to McKinsey Talks Talent, featuring McKinsey leaders and talent experts Brian Hancock and Bill Shanninger. I'm Lucia Rahili. I think you take a step back and you you ask yourself, is this really a ritual? Is this really something that is truly communal, that truly has meaning and broader purpose? And if I feel like I'm getting you know, 20%, 30%, 40% eye rolls, I take a step back and say, as a leader, what do I need to do to better infuse a common sense of purpose here? That's Brian talking about workplace rituals. He's here with Bill and me to talk about the social bonds we've lost and how rituals can revive them. Guys, welcome to the podcast. It's so great to see you. It is wonderful to be live. Nice to see you. Last week, I was talking to our amazing podcast producer, Laurel Moglin, and she told me that one of her team members asked her the question, what is an office ritual? This is someone who's very smart. She's very talented. She's Gen Z. She was hired during the pandemic, and she just has no context for what an office ritual means. She hasn't participated in in-office rituals, and she hasn't been in the workplace for a period when office rituals have been well-established and thriving. What would you do in a case like that? One of my banking clients, they hired an unbelievable number of people through and during the period of, of when we were out, right, not a lot of work. And we were encouraging them, and I believe they took this up, where we were basically going to re-onboard everyone. Enculturation, at its core, requires actual interaction with other human beings. How people dress, how they show up, you know, all the sorts of behavioral cues that you would get come from seeing another human being. Now, in the generation we're particularly talking about, not because I want to sound like a dinosaur or anything, but it is a group that's perfectly comfortable sitting next to each other, not speaking and texting. Right, so the 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 movement of of digital interaction as a place of actual interaction got very comfortable for them. So it's not surprising that you saw folks go from the last year or two years of college being largely remote, then into a first job situation. I think that's all fine, maybe because they're more facile with the digital tools, but that's not growing an employee who's thinking about we. That's growing a contractor who's thinking about me. And I just think we have to reboot, right, when we have to get a chance to bring them together and show them why that wearing the badge should matter. I mean, very very tactically, you know, we're having a winter welcome party at our house for everybody who joined during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And so it introduces them to the idea that one of the things we do is we get together to say, welcome, we're, we're glad you're here. And I think that just showing an intentional gathering where we're recognizing that our work lives are more than what we individually contribute, that's how you do it. You demonstrate through a few of those things, and then people get it. What do we mean when we talk about rituals in the context of work? Just the basic idea of a ritual is this thing that it's like a repeated act, right? It's It has custom to it. Typically, when you talk about ritual in the workplace, you're almost always grouping it with other things that would help define culture, like the classic Ed Shine definition of culture around rites, rituals, ceremonies, language, behaviors, and generally accepted norms and values. The short version, what makes us us, right? Like what we do that you can kind of count on, what matters to us. 
The rituals, though, are almost always episodic in the way that they're triggered by something else. And it usually has a community aspect to it. It's not just you alone, but it is something you're doing together. Congratulations, you got elected a partner. We're going to have a dinner together to recognize that. We're going to have toasts at that dinner, which again is a community recognition. So rituals at work are an important part of how we are the community that we are in work. Where I was going to go next, Brian, and that's a next, that's a nice segue, is what's the theory on what it is that rituals help us to achieve in the workplace? One thing that rituals can do is they can make the connectivity that we desire in the workplace easier to do. And so my wife has a great ritual in her workplace, which is just calling out with gratitude what somebody has done that week and then passes it on to the next person and the next person then sends that email the following week to everyone else with that acknowledgement. So it, so that's one form of a ritual. Another form is you know recognizing that something significant has happened, an election uh, to partner. the At a law firm uh, where I was uh, working, they had a ritual for the first deal dinner for somebody on the corporate team. It's recognizing that somebody has accomplished something, crossed a threshold, you know, a recognition that something significant has happened. So rituals, interestingly, can be both routine ways that we acknowledge being together and acknowledge each other, as well as recognitions of what is, by definition, not routine. The first, a transition, a movement to something next. And I think what I'm hearing you say also is that rituals don't only have to be rites of passage. They can be at a more frequent cadence. They can be daily. They can be weekly. Is that right? They don't have to be, you know, just promotions, just retirements. Well, the daily thing is quite interesting. Think about if you're at like a local watering hole and someone leaves a nice tip and they ring the bell, right? Or, you know, there, there are things that are ritualistic, but because you can count on that, because you can look forward to it happening, it starts becoming a part of the tie that binds. You know, my daughter's field hockey team, they uh, carb load the night before uh, games, right? But they all look forward to it because it rotates houses, but they're all going to descend upon it and do it. Long, long ago when I ran a residential psychiatric treatment center, the only day all the staff were in were on Wednesdays. And every Wednesday night, the supervisors would always take the staff out, right, you know, for, for food and some drinks, and you could count on it. I mean, it took even snowstorms. You're like, we'll walk down. <laughs> there was, it was that kind of thing. Well, the sports, the field hockey example that you gave is kind of an interesting one because I believe there's an abundance of sports psychology research on the value of pre-performance rituals. I don't actually know, thinking about it, whether that's like LeBron throwing the chalk before the basketball game or more like the Phil Jackson... Lakota, Zen, mindfulness ritual stuff. But is there similar research on the value of rituals in the workplace? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Similar to habit building for individuals. Rituals are, are similarly good for groups. They're good for, they're good for the broader organization. They're very good for teams. And part of that is this is what we do together and for each other. Pretty big deal. And, and, the, and the research would show that those rituals that work tend to have, you know, two aspects to it. One is explicit community building as part of it, explicit recognition of each other. And then the second is usually some physical aspect of the ritual. 
being together, raising a glass and a toast. You know, the, the, and I think that second one is what, uh, during the pandemic, we had uh, jeopardized. It was harder to have some of the things that had been in-person rituals. It was harder for that to be done over the course of the pandemic. And I think one of the things we're seeing is some organizations have been very intentional about bringing those back, and some haven't. And I think it would be interesting to go back and see for those who haven't brought them back, are they missing something that they'd had before? And are they lagging in terms of the ties that bind organizations that were intentional in bringing it back? Right. So loneliness and atomization at work and in society more broadly was already on the upswing pre-pandemic, right? So it feels like the pandemic sent those feelings spiking just at a moment when we probably needed them more acutely than than ever. Any examples of remote rituals that were introduced to mitigate that during the pandemic that you think folks actually liked? I have so many I know that people don't like, like the right. you know, cocktails over Zoom. <laughs> I, know. I know. Like the, 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 the amazing ritual, I think, that is non-workplace that was introduced during the pandemic was quarantine clapping. I live in New York City and quarantine clapping was amazing. We looked oh, forward yeah. to that every yeah. night. It was yep. so moving. The kids did it. Everybody opened their windows and clapped. Yeah. In the workplace, you tell me. Did you see clients doing any interesting things differently? There were there was a lot of virtual water cooler scheduling and wine tasting or chocolate tasting. So Kat Ward, who's uh, at Jobs for the Future, uh, had a Mindful Mondays. And it was a time for reflection uh, across the team, a shared way of both reflecting individually where you were, you know, how it's going in the week, but also something that was communal. And something that that lended itself both to in person, but also doing communally over Zoom. And what I liked about the Mindful Mondays is that's different than let's have drinks over Zoom. There's a different form of intentionality behind it, a different form of purposefulness, both for the individual and the collective, that I thought was pretty cool and a good example of what was done even during the pandemic that could be extended beyond. Yeah, there's something interesting there too. Um, this notion of formlessness in an always-on remote world in which you can't differentiate the weekend from any other day is fatiguing for folks. And that particular Mindful Mondays ritual actually addresses that. It brings in personal life. It brings in the idea of the weekend right into your Monday morning and kind of demarcates the beginning of the week. I love that example. When Philly was small, when when we could still sit around a couple tables, you know, and, and because- Oh, the Philly office. The yeah. Philly office. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, we started like with 12 of us and let's say, you know, it still felt small up until around maybe 50, 60 people fit in one small area and we would do the go around on Fridays you know for lunch when we had really good attendance and sort of like who did something cool this week and that was uh that was great for the youngsters you know to be able to hear the broad breadth of what we were doing but also for them to be able to talk with some level of personal pride about a cool thing they got to do that week I mean it's 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 one of these things you know when you listen to it I don't think it ever sounds all that profound right but when you but the actual practice of doing it it is the part that is the habitual part of it. Right? That's why it's a ritual, because you just do it and everybody counts on it. 
And the minute you miss it once, people will notice it. And, and I think there is a part to this uh, that I'd love actually your your thoughts on this too, Bill. Um, where ritual is how we bring the spiritual into work and how we bring in something that is broader than ourselves, a reflectiveness, as well as, you know, spiritual can mean just aligning with a purpose, aligning with something beyond yourself. How do we think about ritual as aligning with a purpose beyond ourselves at work? Well, look, I think the extent to which it helps someone feel like they're part of something bigger and get energy from that and know that it's not just about the tactical but that really is for a higher calling, and that's what we're going to do. And I, I think it's always good. I mean, I've, in my lifetime in McKinsey, we were really doing a lot of the meditation stuff and saying, before we go into this meeting, let's just get together quietly for a moment, center ourselves, and agree on the intention for what we're trying to do here. That's not everyone's cup of tea. But when you have a group who shares that cup of tea and believes it's useful, that can be quite powerful in knowing that you're united in that purpose, right? which I think brings energy you know, to, to the overall effort. And, and I think to me, it's what differentiates a meaningful ritual from forced fun. So suppose you're a leader and you've been intentional about introducing new rituals throughout the remote period. To your point, folks can invest very different meaning in different rituals, right? And often those activities reflect one's own idiosyncratic preferences and temperaments, cultural biases, and so forth. So what do you do if you're a leader and you have a situation where my ritual is your big eye roll? I think you take a step back and you you ask yourself, is this really a ritual? Is this really something that is truly communal, that truly has meaning and broader purpose. And if I feel like I'm getting, you know, 20%, 30%, 40% eye rolls, I take a step back and say, as a leader, what do I need to do to better infuse a common sense of purpose here? What do I need to do to infuse more commonality? Because this ritual isn't landing in a way that is fostering that for the broader community. So that, to me, indicates I've got more work to do, maybe on the ritual, but maybe on some of the underlying connectivity, purpose, sense of meaning as well. It may just be you need to go back to smaller, more micro-sized ones that are easier to land across the board and build into it. I mean, I you know, I'm, I don't like keep using the Philly office, but I do think it's interesting. When we were smaller, for us, Values Day always had two components. The, the morning was service, and we loved picking only a Philly charity to go do manual labor, right, all of us. And then the afternoon would be our version of the amazing race, right? You'd have teams and do it, and all the partners showed up, and all the senior partners showed up, and we'd have teams, and we'd be ru- literally running around old old town Philadelphia and end up having we're like something mini Cambridge where we'd end up serving the associates, mm-hmm. you know, bringing them food and things. And there was just something about the idea of service was throughout the day but in different versions, and it was like a signature event for us. I do think the specialness part, which is why, you know, I, I, it has to feel special to everybody or or you very quickly you have to re- come to grips with the fact that maybe your culture is not quite as mono as you thought. But some of these examples that you're using are great examples, but they're a bit solemn, right? This notion of service or this notion of getting together to reflect. Lots of rituals start in a kind of 
serendipitous, ridiculous way in which behavior sparks some kind of connection or fellow feeling and then gets repeated and then through that repetition gets imbued with the kind of meaning that you're describing. So if you're a leader and you're trying to think at the outset about how to introduce a new ritual, how do you encourage folks to give it a go and overcome what might be initial resistance Not necessarily cynicism, but initial resistance to something that feels a little uncomfortable or not like a good use of time or infantile or whatever it is, right? Yeah, I mean, look, there's a couple things going on there. I mean, one is, I remember for the longest time, there was a run, there was the earliest days of really thinking about an inclusive work environment. Mm -hmm. So, you know, drinks at every event was problematic, right? And right. then, or you pivot it over to where if you have a young office where everyone's having children, if every event is a child friendly at Franklin Park, and you have the younger BAs going, so when when do we get to go to Fado? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And so the sum is there the uh, have you threaded the needle on truly a tie that binds for everyone? But I do think a good question is if you can say we do this fill in the blank because fill in the blank. What's the thing that we do that feels like this is our inside thing? And I would say, if you are marking a transition, don't worry about it. Just do it. And that's going to be so natural for everybody whose transition you're you're marking. You can't go wrong with welcoming or recognizing the first time somebody did something great, like finish their first study, or when somebody's leaving. I was just thinking, and again, it's, it's broad, but the idea of rituals. I, you know, I, my, my broader integrated family has a fantasy football uh, league. So we do a draft every year, and the draft, the rituals of that draft are: uh, my mother-in-law does buffalo chicken dip, right? You know, my my sister-in-law's mother-in-law does spicy and mild sausage with peppers, and those things you get to count on. Like, hey, you're bringing your sausage, right? <laughs> and I do, I do wings. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I do homemade wings for everyone. And that's so everyone has their thing, and so. In you know COVID's case, there were many. I think organizations they got it right when they went to the reopening of the offices. The first thing they did was find an excuse to be together. You know, have have a moment, have a special lunch. So a lot of these in-person rituals that we maybe took for granted pre-pandemic, and that you're describing, are you seeing them reemerge at the same scale as as before? Has it been harder to reintroduce these rituals? I think at a minimum, a two-year break or an 18-month break in the norm means all bets are off. And you have it's a, both a luxury but also a little bit of higher bar to remind people that we do have things that make us us. The optionality thing is the thing I worry most about, which is when we've backed our way into my work, not our work, and you have people working at different times of the day, not in the same place, how do we get back to the we? I don't know that you'd get to the point where it's it's not optional because it starts sounding like a mandate. We've talked this quite a bit, right? Generate momentum without a mandate. But the idea that there's a there's an expectation to be part of this group, and part of that expectation is your presence, because it's what's made it's what makes us us us. That's a tough line to walk, but I think you have to do it if you want a crew that's actually knitted together, not a group of vendors. And I think what I would do if I was thinking of starting something up. I would ground it in one of two things, if not both. One is mindfulness, and the other is gratitude. If you start with a combination of mindfulness and gratitude, 
good things are going to happen as a group, and it won't feel forced. It will come from a good place. And other things can can loop on. Silly rituals, things can build on it when it starts from that link to a broader purpose and a recognition of what is more than just you. I think that's at the core of what you know the, the truly great rituals are. So that's talking a bit about engineering rituals from the top down. Are there ways that leaders can create preconditions that foster the development of rituals from the bottom up? Because some of the bottom up rituals are the most fun, even if not as capital intensive as, you know, the big. No, I think anywhere you have more than one person, you've got a couple people and there's a repetitive nature to their routine. You have an opportunity for ritual. I mean, long, long ago, our former practice manager, who was my EM, we had this routine where we would go from Chattanooga to Hartsfield on every Thursday. And there was a moment where she needed to get out of her work gear and into like her jeggings and sweatshirt because that was her flying gear. And that signaled the moment when we knew we were going to like go eat at like, you know, Pompadour or something. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like it was like one of these it was one of these things which is like there was like a clear line in the sand. Like when when the uni comes off and the jeggings and sweatshirt come on, it's time for Thursday night food. Which was a great way as a team, which usually me as the E D, the EM and a couple of the associates, kind of just celebrate the week. Right, acknowledge people who had a tough one, whatever. It was a wonderful way to end the week, because then you can even think about, oh, we know this person, you know, they're going to get engaged this weekend. Let's get excited, that kind of stuff, right? And getting back to this question, we did have uh, some LinkedIn feedback on happy hours and the benefit of happy hours for relationship building and so forth, which is a classic, right? That's a classic team building potentially ritualistic activity. But to your point, Bill, not everyone drinks and happy hours can be not as inclusive of folks or not necessarily make folks feel comfortable. How, as a leader, do you think about inclusivity and rituals and making sure that the rituals that you try to set up involve as many people as possible and don't have the opposite of your intended effect. For me, it comes down to the intentionality by which you plan the ritual and you execute it. If you're having a happy hour and the purpose of the happy hour is to express gratitude for what folks have done, buy somebody a beer and say, hey, thanks, I know it's a hard week. And this is the time where as a leader, you're explicitly going person by person in the week. That's a pretty darn good happy hour, whether you're drinking or not. Because the, because the purpose of the happy hour isn't the bar. It is to express things. And if the venue is happy hour and that's one that everybody's comfortable with, great. If not everybody's comfortable with it, you as a leader need to find another way to express the same gratitude uh, that you're looking to do uh, that is inclusive. And I'm, and I'm not sure. I think there are places where you know, I recently went to a happy hour in Atlanta at a great tapas place. And I don't think anybody had anything to drink. I think it was all there because we were just grabbing tapas and, you know, something light before we we head out. So I think that was still considered a happy hour, uh, even though we weren't drinking. So I think it is possible to, to do it. But the messaging is critical because if it feels like it's happy hour, we're all going out to drink. Like that's not the purpose. That's not the ritual isn't to drink, the ritual is to be together and say thanks. As a leader, you have to be thoughtful about how is this advancing our togetherness? Mm -hmm. 
And it's not just being together. There's got to be something more. And so does that include the communication about the ritual as well? In other words, the invitation to participate, the way that you, you know, foster dynamics at the event, et cetera, et cetera. Particularly the one you were describing, Mm -hmm. right, which is notorious for in cases when you have the open bar, you have things go a little south. And during the pandemic, we decoupled work from geography in some way, right? Folks scattered, we became more geographically disparate, hiring stretched out across more regions, So now with the persistence of hybrid, how does that complicate the development and the durability of rituals in our working lives, given that most rituals, to your point, have centered on and grown out of in-person activity in the past? Well, if I could, you know, be a wet blanket, remind us that the vast majority of people are not a hybrid. They're still going to work. And those folks desperately need this as well, right? If you think about the, the the disaffected nature of a lot of the a lot of the workforce, folks who have been taken down the road of truly economic exchange kind of interactions with dollar per hour on the billboard and we'll pay you that day, this sort of behavior, boy, it's a now more than ever thing for people even going to work. So I just wanted to get that in because yes, yes for a hybrid, but you know the, there's a huge swath of the American workforce. That does not feel like they're respected by the company or valued as a person first. And these are the kind of things that show the person first matters. So I would encourage us to think about it absolutely for the people who are still going to the workplace Mm -hmm. to do their work. Now, in the hybrid sense, you know, I, I worried when we opened things up in COVID to say you can live wherever you want. I felt like that was there was an immediacy to that that was probably satisfying. I wasn't sure how we were ever going to get back to what's the tie that binds meaningfully. And I'm, I think we're probably going to pay for that for a couple of years, honestly. And I think it requires you to be more explicit about what the ritual is and why. We're having a mindful Monday to think about our purpose and where we're aligned. It's not something that we're accidentally walking into. We're, we're calling it a mindful Monday. We're having a gratitude email chain. Those are things that work perfectly well via a hybrid, and they're things that engage and and bind us together. But you have the reason of why you're doing it in the title of the email for the event or in the title of the email for the gratitude chain. I mean, you know what it is. It's it's a ritual that says on, as one of my British guys, it says on the tin what it is. Does each of you have a favorite ritual from the pre-pandemic era that has not resurfaced? Farewell dinners. Before the pandemic, if you lost a colleague um, to another firm, they were retiring, you would absolutely have a dinner. And you would get together and you would share the great stories and you would often include families and you know, you would send that person off in a way that everybody left and was a little sad and a little happy about the evening. And I think over the course of the pandemic, somebody's Zoom box just wasn't there anymore. And it just became expected that, you know, hey, things move. Somebody was remote. It's hard to orchestrate. And I haven't seen those farewell dinners come back. And 
you know, if if there was one ritual that I wish would come back, that's the one. So in your view, what's at stake if leaders neglect the role of rituals in the workplace at this juncture? It weakens the link to purpose. It it weakens the link to the manager. Uh, and it and it weakens the ties across the organization. And all three of those we know are critical for company performance, critical for retention, and critical for the well-being of the individual. And we lose all of them. You know, we used to say things like, culture is happening whether you manage it or not. There will be pockets of people in the organization that get together and have their rituals. But you just have to decide whether or not you're going to have a ritual for the big week. And left unchecked and unmanaged, you'll go lowest common denominator. And you'll never really get the scale benefit of a broader tie that binds. Bill, did you have a ritual that you wanted to add? Uh, we got a comment on one of our posts from Larissa Fenn, who was talking about frying a turkey you know, out in the maintenance shop. And I think the idea is that, listen, that takes work. It takes effort. You know, you got to get the bird. You got to get the oil. You have to have it set up safely. I mean, I think the, almost the more work that goes into it, it's not just running out and picking up sandwiches. It's actual TLC, right, to be able to provide something. I think it makes it even more magical. I had a, a refinery manager down in Louisiana who, when he first got to his refinery, really wanted to show that safety mattered to him. So he'd go out in the morning and get massive boxes of those um, Krispy Kreme donuts, which in the South are the donut. They're still warm and they're amazing. And he'd stand at the gatehouse, and if somebody pulled up and they were wearing their seatbelt, they got a donut and a high five. If they weren't, they got sent home. That is a ritual, and <laughs> you can count on it that he's going to be there. And I, I think the common denominator is things like it requires work, requires effort. It's very clearly tied to the purpose, like in that case, safety, right? I think those things, food is a grand enabler of these things, right? Because there's, what do we all do? We all eat. We're either eating alone at our desk or finding a way to prioritize eating together. Right. I mean, my mother is Italian, so the entire expression of love happens through food. And I will say... After 9-11, I was working downtown, um, and we had been in the middle of 9-11 and so forth in our, in our office, and went back to the office fairly quickly because remote work was not a phenomenon then as, as it is now. And three quarters of the office were laid off, and this friend of mine and I used to, like, every day go get a really hot, rich coffee from this Italian place around the corner and walk down to the water for just 10 minutes and talk. And it was like that coffee just bloomed in your heart like a flower. And it made the whole day better. It was great. It was such a it was such a lovely ritual that we established. That was just just micro. It was a micro, you know, food cannot be underestimated in my view. All right, guys, great discussion. Super helpful as always. I'm glad we have the ritual of getting together. Mm -hmm. It's nice. I do. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Lucia Rahilly with Brian Hancock and Bill Shanninger. Subscribe to McKinsey Talks Talent wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have questions for Brian and Bill, write to us at McKinseyTalksTalent at McKinsey.com. We'd love to hear from you, and we may answer your question on the show. Be well.